Good morning, all. This is Coffee with Jim. What a great privilege and honor it is to have with us today an incredibly accomplished, respected leader, Dr. Akshay Kandelwal, an interventional cardiologist and associate division head of cardiology at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. Within the Henry Ford Medical Group, Dr. Kandelwal is a member of the Operations Council, Board of Governors of Population Health Committee, the Physicians Network Clinical Integration Committee, the chair of the BOG Finance Committee. Additionally, he chairs Michigan's STEMI Systems of Care task force. Since becoming a fellow of the ACC, American College Cardiology, in 2007, Dr. Kandelwal has been an active member throughout his career at the state, national, and international level. He led the Michigan chapter of the ACC as governor from 2016 through 2019. Next, he was chair of the American College of Cardiology Board of Governors and secretary of the Board of Trustees. He's a husband, dad, uncle, friend, and so much more. Akshay, great to have you here with us today. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Akshay, before we get into our leadership discussion, Discussion. We talked a little bit about theming it, finding common ground. What if we back up a half a step and just acknowledge for a moment we're in this pandemic and lots of us are all a little itchy to even travel because of the limited mobility now. If I were to just ask you, if you and your family and kids could get away anywhere, where would you go right now? If you were guaranteed that it would be safe. I think I'd go to the most boisterous, crowded place on earth. <laughs> I, I think that would probably be Orlando for several reasons. One, it would be great to meet my parents in person who we've kept at arm's length uh, because of the pandemic, both uh, here in Michigan as well as uh, its effects in Florida. I think secondly, we've had to now cancel our Universal Studios Islands of Adventure vacation a third time, uh, the most recent, of course, because of the pandemic. Uh, I, I certainly owe that to my kids. My boys are huge football fans. I'd go and attend a New Year's Bowl game there. I think I'd take my daughter to Disney uh, and, and sort of meet all the Disney princesses. She's a girly girl, and that's what she'd love to do. And I'd probably go take my wife uh, to a Bollywood show that frequent to Orlando. So lots of fun things to do. I'd love to go back. <laughs> And on a separate note, last week we were talking a little bit about preparations for this discussion, and you had also recently celebrated Diwali. Can you give us a little background about that holiday and what might make it relevant at all for our discussion today, finding common ground? For certain. You know, Diwali is one of those ancient, time-tested stories of the struggle of light versus dark, good versus evil, triumph of righteousness. According to Hindu mythology, King Rama, after defeating the evil King Ravan, uh, was on his way back home uh, with his wife and brother. And in order to guide their path home, villagers and townsfolk and city folk along the way lit oil lamps. And I think it's sort of metaphorical, the simplest level, literally lighting the pathway for their journey home. But at another level, sort of symbolizing the fact that light dispels darkness. And I think even more elementally, the fact that light or righteousness really can be created anywhere, almost even in the heart of darkness or in the darkest places. Uh, to put that into the context of a more modern story, in The Dark Knight, Harvey Dent says, uh, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And I think that that's true. And I think that's what Diwali helps to symbolize. Well, thanks for that symbolism. And I like the image again of lighting the path, which does take us back to our discussion today, finding common ground, team building. And we know our country is facing one of the most divisive moments in recent history. So what makes these topics important for you 
now, Akshay, as a physician leader? Yeah, I think finding common ground is essential to team building for physicians and clinicians. I think we're generally used to working the problem. We've often, I mean, our, our work obviously is centered around the patient. Our goal is to understand the patient, their history, their presenting signs and symptoms, uh, even their background and how that might contribute to their current problem. In addition, we're used to working with other clinicians who may be playing a role or a part in the care of that patient. Operating in a team-based environment, making a shared decision with the patient and in the patient's best interest, irrespective of what we may feel or what personal beliefs we might hold has always been pretty central to the way that we operate as clinicians. And I think there's some great parallels between how we lead as clinicians and as physicians and ways that we can find common ground in the world today. And since you and I have had the pleasure to work together in various capacities over the last few years, I think it was several years ago, maybe first getting introduced via one of the leadership academies of the ACC, I would argue that two of your many strengths include having a high degree of emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And I think that's why so many people say about you that he is an empathetic leader and he is good at team building. If I were to play devil's advocate and say, well, actually, that's just the touchy-feely stuff. It doesn't matter. What makes emotional intelligence and social intelligence important for clinician leaders? I would probably argue, yes, it is touchy-feely. That's important. <laughs> it's as important as being cerebrally intelligent. It's as important as one's physical fitness, uh, one's mental stability. And while I don't necessarily need to bring in religion, but a spiritual moral compass, all these are elements that really help guide us as leaders. So why wouldn't emotional intelligence be one of them? It's what makes us human. We are leading teams of human beings to treat other human beings. Emotions and emotional intelligence is part and parcel of, of that conversation. It's in the DNA of what we do. Uh, I think it's to someone, it's to one's peril if you don't recognize the pitfalls of emotional intelligence when dealing with groups, when managing other physicians and other clinicians, uh, and when treating patients. Well, so you kind of touched on it. Well, what makes that get lost? I mean, you touched on a couple of different types of intelligence. Obviously, there's the clinical intelligence, there's the EQ and the SQ, if you will, social quotient, social intelligence. What makes that get lost? I don't think that we spend a lot of time developing that. We don't spend a lot of time paying attention to that. The bedrock of being a physician is the years of education and continuous education, right? You go to school for a long time, you've got college, medical school, postgraduate training, you're constantly learning. That's something that you can quantify. Even physical fitness, we've all taken PE uh, in high school. Most of us remain physically active. That's easy to track. I mean, Apple Watch and other intelligent products make it easy to keep track of at a very personal level. Even to some extent, our moral compass that I was sort of mentioning before, whether it's our involvement in philosophical classes, those of us who have religious leanings uh, within our own houses and uh, of worship, I, I think there's some pathway that's been shown to us throughout the years in terms of how to develop that. But I think the one thing that we don't do very well is teach and understand emotional intelligence. As I said earlier, it's part and parcel of being a leader. That's not to discount the clear objective side that we need as leaders, right? So we need to understand what our procedural volumes are. Uh, we need to ensure that we're achieving our quality targets. Uh, we're meeting benchmarks in terms of cost. But the other aspect of it is making sure that we know that we have teams of people that think or that know that, that we care for them. And unless those individuals feel cared for, they're not going to perform optimally. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Many people recognize this, which is why surveying for wellness, surveying for how well does your employer or employee listen to you, how, how well do they fit into your culture, has become a very important part of a successful enterprise. Time and time again, I'm sort of surprised by how understanding people can be of difficult circumstances as long as they felt that they've been listened to or heard. And we sometimes worry as leaders about we've got to couch this or we've got to be careful about 
that, you know, it's a lot easier to have that conversation if you come right out with what the challenges are, make sure the other individual is heard, and then work together to come up with a solution. There were great points there, especially that being listened to comes back to HCAPs, patient satisfaction scores, and so many other places, whether it's in the medical field or not, as I know you know, that's a, a key piece of communication and a key piece to building relationships and finding common ground. So in one of our previous discussions, for example, we've spoken about things like the George Floyd incident, Black Lives Matter, the police situation in Minneapolis. You know, what scenarios do you play out in your head if you could resolve some of these complex, complex issues? Yeah, it's unfortunate that sometimes politics ends up clouding a perspective uh, that one may hold on that. I think when you take that out, those situations have been very painful to watch because, again, no, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are, it's, it's a tragedy by any account. To paraphrase a statement that was probably not used in the right way, I would use this statement a little bit differently. But I think in general, there are really good people on both sides or on all sides. And I, and I just think it's understanding what they believe in, what their values are, and why does it seem that they're sort of coming together at loggerheads? And instead, how do we find solutions that take us from that place of conflict to a place of resolution that I think is, is critical to solving uh, these issues? I often think, you know, first, I'd, I'd want to certainly do my homework and talk to individuals and groups uh, on various sides that hold various positions to understand, you know, what their concerns are, because I honestly believe that most people harbor goodwill and are well-intentioned. They may have misperceptions about other people or other individuals. They may be at times misguided, but I think for the most part, people have a good intent. And I think I often wonder why can't our, our national leaders get some of these different and diverse groups together in a single room to have a conversation, you know, free of the cameras, free of, you know, the social media hashtags and so on. So that it, this doesn't become a spectacle, it becomes really more of an effort at problem solving. I often wonder why in a round table or banquet a hall setting, you couldn't get people that had been beaten by police, uh, a, a, a cop who was perhaps maimed or injured by, uh, you know, by work-related violence from an assailant, a, a mother who lost their child to the police, somebody who lost their spouse, a member of the police force due to violence. Get all these individuals in a group, and I think you'll have a lot of commonality about righteousness, about the ability to, to have a fair hearing and to not be judged in the moment. We want all everyone to be feel protected. We want everyone to feel safe. Uh, at the same time, I think we would come away with understanding that uh, there have to be guardrails because no matter who you are and what side of the fence you're on, we, we all want to avoid unnecessary and accidental deaths and homicides. I just don't know why we can't have this conversation sooner. I didn't mention necessarily gender or race in, in those sort of examples of the individuals. And that's not to say that race isn't an underpinning of this. I think that you could, for example, spotlight the very prototypical case of a, a white police officer and a black victim of police violence. We also have to realize that you can't ignore the fact that this isn't just a racial thing. And in fact, sometimes I worry that when you bring in racial undertones like that, it, while it's important to understand that that may be the underpinning of some of what's going on, uh, it detracts from the larger conversation and it detracts from our ability to solve the problem. You know, the bottom line is, is that most people probably believe that police are necessary, uh, that they are there for our safety and our security. They have a job to do that's difficult that not many people would find easy uh, and that it's a true calling and that at times they need to be protected. At the same time, I think many people could come to the same conclusions that individuals in the United States have rights. Uh, we deserve to ensure that any punishment is meted by a court of law, that individuals, even if they're police officers or members of the government, shouldn't take the law into their own hands and that we want to make sure that 
while I don't think that most people are racist, I think most people on all sides are good people, that there may be some structural racial issues that have created situations where people misinterpret situations, and that is leading to further conflict, and that may be the root of the problem that has to be addressed. Yeah, so you're laying out the complexity and the breadth and depth of, of that example, and we're getting pieces of what we might begin to call a, maybe a protocol for finding common ground. There are many who say that racism contributes to our public health crisis. In what ways does this discussion about race and systemic racism impact you? Yeah, I think that typically physicians have tried to stay away from political or social issues, as I think for the most part we, we must because we have an allegiance to the patient no matter who they are, what their beliefs are, what they may or may not have done. You know, to use this last case example, if a, an individual fires on a policeman and the policeman or policewoman or police person uh, fires back and they're both injured, they come to the same hospital, they both get equivalent care. It doesn't matter who was right and who was wrong. As physicians, as clinicians, we're going to treat both equally irrespective of what their beliefs are. But at the same time, it's just, it's been difficult not to ignore that, again, while I think most people are well-intentioned and well-meaning, it's been difficult to ignore the fact that there seem to be some structural issues that are leading to conflict. And you can call those structural issues racist. You can call them, you know, social economic tiers that are unfair. Some people don't like to hear the word racism or racist. But I think unless we confront the truth and the reality that there are significant differences that lead to significant inequities, I think it is going to become very challenging for us to move forward as a society, to move forward as a nation, to move forward as a people. And so with that background, I think it's important for clinicians and physicians to understand that this may be one of those times that we do need to take a stand for. I don't think that in the past, many physicians have been quick to say out loud that Black Lives Matter, but I think the George Floyd incident really changed that. And I think I was proud that our health system had a Black Lives Matter event for physicians and clinicians and other hospital workers on a day that many other hospitals and healthcare systems across the nation honored at the, the movement and the need to fight racism. And I understand points on the other side that say, well, that all lives matter. You know, wh why is it only black lives matter? You know, the blue lives matter and so on and so forth. And, and I get that too. But I think it, you lose the perspective when you don't understand why people, blacks in particular, state that their lives matter. And it's unfortunately because of not just the history, but based on what's currently happening based on, on current events also it, that gives the appearance to Black Americans that their lives don't matter or don't matter as much. So I think the reality is, is that all lives matter, yes, and all lives matter should matter equally. But until Black lives matter, until Blacks feel that their lives matter, we can't get to that state where all lives matter. And I think this is just one of those times that as physicians, we can honor at all sides of the discussion, but it is important to say that racism has no place in our society. It's not like 50 years ago where a, where a lot of it was overt. This may be subvertive. This may be unintentional. It may not even be, as I said at the, at earlier, it may not be at the individual level. I think we have to start recognizing that there are vestiges of the 1600s, the 1800s, of the 1950s and 60s that still live on today. Nobody here is necessarily guilty of continuing those on, but they have persisted nonetheless, and they continue to remain a barrier towards equal opportunity and greater equality, both values that 
are enshrined in our constitution and our declaration of independence. You touched on a lot of things there. It reminds me of something you told me a while ago, which there are times in history when you have to pick a side. I think what you're saying now is even though physicians, healthcare providers are normally meant to kind of remain neutral, keeping the patient center first and always, this may be one of those times when physicians and physician leaders do need to speak up. Yeah, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can still be objective in our care, but I actually think that this is one of those times that advocating for ending racism and ending socioeconomic disparities, ending disparities in care actually helps us achieve our mission and our vision as opposed to the opposite. So I think it's not only can we do both, but we, we must do both. We should do both. Great example of the both and. So you're touching, of course, on why does finding common ground matter? And you've even touched on this next question. What's the magic formula for finding common ground? If I knew the magic formula, I would have shared it by now. I don't have all the answers. I'm one of 300 million people living in this country. I do think that when I look at our divisive environment, I think there is a an urgency for people to listen and to understand. And I think we have to start having those conversations within our families. If we come from different sides of, this, of the political spectrum, we need to have those conversations with friends, probably not at work because you don't want to destroy the work environment, but certainly if you have friends from work, it's a great opportunity because we have a cross section of society that we often encounter at work. It's a great group to sort of draw from. I think we need to start having those conversations in our neighborhoods, in our communities. I think we need to get out of the bubble that, you know, that we sometimes live in. Many of us are used to deriving our news sources from one particular group or another, paying attention to this group of people versus that group on social media. And I think we need to tear down those barriers. I wish, for example, that to use the political example that and the media that CNN and Fox News could host a joint show broadcast on both networks with individuals from all sides, center, left, and right, to have a conversation with facts without tearing people down, not shying away from values that they may hold, even if it's values that others may not, but also taking the time to listen and understand and giving an opportunity for other people to listen and understand and maybe ending with, you know what, we may have differences of opinion, but there's a lot of commonality that we share and we're all Americans. Yeah, great image. And I like your last thought. Actually, touching on some of the points you made earlier, everything from lighting the path, Diwali, you talked about the moral compass, talked about listening well, families being divided. I mean, my family's divided on certain topics too, like many families are. Listening, understanding, empathy. If you were to look back, say back to 07, when you were first an ACC fellow and achieved a lot since then, in beginning to conclude today, what are some life and leadership lessons that you've learned along the way? I think that it's easy as leaders sometimes to jump to conclusions. I've done that certainly at my home institution and some of the leadership roles that I've, I've had, uh, certainly within the American College of Cardiology or other organizations. I do that with my family sometimes. I perhaps jump to a conclusion when I hear one story from one child who's warring with another uh, instead of really stepping back and trying to understand the entire situation and what might motivate one side versus the other. And I think it's important to understand as leaders that everybody has a story and it's important to get to the bottom of that story, also realizing that most people want to do or think that they're doing the right thing. They just may be a little bit misguided. We've talked consistently throughout the conversation about emotional intelligence. That's not to mean that we shouldn't pay attention to some of the more objective data. In fact, sometimes that's actually 
the more important piece of the conversation because that can combat unhelpful emotions. But we have to be willing to rely on data dispassionately, even if it challenges our own personal views about a particular area, even if it challenges our own convictions. So I think that's the challenge of marrying both the hardcore reality of data and the emotional aspects of leadership. We can't let our emotions drive us how to use the data. What we need to do is using that data, using emotional intelligence to help drive change. But we, we need to make sure that we're using objective data because that's the one thing that's easiest for groups to agree upon. And it's never going to be emotions, right? So you can espouse whatever principles you want. And you do need to have some core values, but you can espouse whatever solutions to achieve those core values that you want. But if the data doesn't show that you're getting there, if you're not getting there objectively, you're taking the wrong path. Once you realize what the data are, that based on X, Y, and Z, you need to be heading in, in this direction. You need to have not only the ability to change convictions, especially if they're your own, but also to use any emotional intelligence strengths that you may have to persuade others that we need a change in, in course. Mm. Well, great points there, and that's so relevant to these times, right, because of the information and or misinformation spread. I think what you're implying is continuing to be open to that information, even if there's some discomfort there. In conclusion, what will make an ideal leader today in 2021? Yeah, I, and I think we've gone back and forth between sort of the clinical environment and the social-political environment, I think, only because that seems to be fairly top of mind for many. It's certainly a is top of mind uh, in my own mind, primarily because it's so visible. The, what, what's visible is, is not just the unrest and the conflict, but honestly, sometimes the lack of leadership. I think people have strayed because their values have changed. They're, they're not acting from a common set of values, which means that you're, it's going to be very hard to have agreement on. Now, that's in, in the political spectrum. When it comes to leading at work or in your family, I think it's important to understand what your core values are. To get to those core values, it's, it's about engaging everybody within your organization or many different facets and perspectives within your organization to come up with those core values. But once you agree to those core values, mission and vision, it's then about charting a course and outlining a plan and devising a strategy to achieve that mission and vision using those core values. Now, this may sound a little corny, and my kids will laugh about this from time to time, but within our own family, we've come up with a set of core values, a mission, and a vision. And it was done with the input of all the children, and obviously my wife, very important to, to get everybody engaged. So we sat down as a family to come up with core values, a mission, and vision. We even have it posted, and every once in a while, we'll refer to these core values when settling disputes. And the kids have actually gotten quite good at it. Every once in a while, they'll point out that, Dad, you're not following this core value in, in what you just said or what you just did. If you take away the parent-child relationship and understand that they're just using these values within their own lives, within, within our family construct, you know, as long as you remain open to that, I think it's actually been very enlightening. And I have had to tell them that, you know what? You're right. And I think that leadership, whether it's in your family or your organization, means that you have to, when you listen and you understand, you also have to accept when you're wrong. That's sometimes difficult. It's challenging. It's especially challenging, I think, in a, in a parent-child relationship. But I think if more people listen, if more people had the courage to accept that they might not be right, that they could be wrong, and it's okay to make mistakes, I think professionally we'd be better. But I think as a society, we'd be much better off. Well, great points there. What an image of you and your family, first of all, developing those core values, living up to them. Has it ever happened that you've had to step down in your role as dad at home? 
<laughs> uh, I hope not. No, I don't. I, I think as, not that we have a formal family constitution, but it would have to be written somewhere in there that that, that role can never change. Um, however, when we have conversations, we try and do this once a week. Everyone gets to have their voice heard uninterrupted. They can complain, they can comment, they can compliment anybody in the family or anybody outside the family. They know that it's a safe space. So I give them that much. But every once in a while, I do have to remind them that dad and mom are still the dictators in the family. <laughs> <laughs> well, such great stuff there. I love the human factor. I love the family factor. Uh, so appreciative to you today, Akshay, for sharing your pearls, wisdom, experience, Humility, loved working with you um, all these years, and thanks for taking time together here today. Thanks, Jim, and thanks again for uh, helping many of us physicians develop our own leadership skills. I still remember to this day you and Mike Valentine sharing your concept of the amygdala hijack, and I think that plays such an important role in this concept of emotional intelligence and, and leading teams and managing conflict uh, that I've used that time and again, so thank you. My great pleasure, Akshay. Continued success to you and wishing good health and peace to you and your family.